Jesus loves. What is love? The Bible says we love him because he first loved us. But what is this love? For many years I didn't understand exactly, perhaps in, an, uh, uh, in a special psychological way at least, the love of Jesus as being humble love. And then I read in Philippians 2, chapter 5, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who was in the form of God. It wasn't robbery that he should be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation. Jesus, who was God, humbled himself. Love that is not humble is not love. Some time ago, a man and his wife came to me and told me about a friend of theirs. And I said, you, you should love him. They said, oh, we love him. We, we love him. I said, how about going up to him and placing your arms around him? And the man said, me? Put my arms around him? They thought they had love, but they didn't have humble love. They didn't have the love that Jesus had that made himself of no reputation. So love, to be real love, is humble love. Love does not tower over another in the holier-than-thou attitude. Love does what the Bible says for love to do. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all men. Love does what the Bible says to do. Philippians 2.3, esteeming other better than ourselves. Love does what the Bible says to do. In Titus 3.2, speak evil of no man. Humble love is divine love. Humble love is kind love. In Jeremiah 31, verse 3, it says, I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness have I drawn you. Loving kindness. You might be interested to notice what Webster's Dictionary has to say about the word kind. I was literally astonished when I first read the definition of the word kind. It said it's like a, a horse that is submissive, teachable in a harness or with one on the saddle. So kindness is almost a shade of humble love. I'd never thought of it that way before. With loving kindness have I drawn you. It's a love that is so sweet, so understanding. It isn't a holier-than-thou love. Uh, which reminds me, Mrs. Holier-than-thou came to see me one day. And she went on to tell me how she couldn't get along with her teenage boy. And, of course, she pointed out his mistakes. Uh, Mr. or Mrs. Holier-than-thou always point out the mistakes of others. Have you ever noticed it? Have you ever met them? They're quite a, a family. I wouldn't say they are a, a unique family, for they have many relatives. But Mrs. Holier-than-thou knew the mistakes that other people make. It's astonishing. She knew the mistakes that her teenager made. I said, what would you think, since you've come for counsel, what would you think of letting the mind of Jesus dwell in you? He made himself of no reputation. That, that text, if you'd go back to the original, it means he reduced himself. Mankind couldn't reduce Jesus. He'd already reduced himself. Born in a stable, cradled in a manger. 
barefooted, bareheaded Nazarene. He didn't worry about anybody reducing him. He didn't worry about anybody belittling him. He'd already reduced himself. And I said, what would you think of going back to your teenager and saying something like this? Honey, I've made a lot of mistakes. Will you forgive me for not being kind and sweet to you? And you know, the lady almost went into shock. She was like some others who said, if I should apologize to my teenager, my teenager would lose respect for me. I said, oh, no, no. The teenager already knows the mistakes that you make. He'd be awfully happy to know that you know it. Oh, is that it? Yes, that is humble love. Humble love is kind, but humble love is also courteous. The word courteous is only found once in all of the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.18, be kind, be courteous. Be kind, be courteous. Oh, my friends, how courteous Christ was to the out-and-out sinner. Don't you thank the Lord for such courtesy as he bestowed on the seeking soul? You know, you and I can do the same everywhere we go. I've walked into Baptist churches, for instance, and you know what I usually find in a Baptist church? I find the same thing that I found in the church where I'm speaking today. I found people came and they were extremely courteous. As I walked into your sanctuary today, there were two or three people there, and I have never met more courteous people than I met in this sanctuary, just like a Baptist. <laughs> and sometimes I say to people of my own church, I said, you know, you folks are just as happy and courteous as Baptists. <laughs> That's a wonderful thing. They walk up to you, they shake your hand. I remember this man shook my hand. He flashed a broad smile into my face. And then with his left hand, he reached out and touched my elbow and gave it a pat. I said, I must be in a in the seventh heaven of the Baptist church. Be kind, be courteous. Courtesy goes a long, long way. And we mustn't wait for somebody to be courteous to us. We must wait for somebody to welcome us. When I was assistant to a pastor in Washington, D.C. many years ago, uh, we went for a, a visit, to visit one of the members of his church family. As he rang the doorbell and she came to the door, she said, Pastor, I'm mad at you, and you could see a twinkle in her eyes. She wasn't really mad, but she wanted him to know that there were th certain things that he needed to correct. She said, Pastor, I'm mad at you. He was very quick-witted, and he, and he came back with this. I'm mad at you, too. She said, you are? What are you mad at me for, for? He said, you tell me first. You brought it up first. She said, I'm mad at you because last Sabbath you didn't shake my hand. He said, that's exactly the reason I'm mad at you. You didn't shake my hand. We must realize that many individuals who seem to be a little distant, they may be absent-minded. Their mind may be on something else. So don't wait for them. Walk right up and shake their hand and beam into their face. In a church of which I was pastor many decades ago, I went to visit a couple of the members of my church family, and they were mad, really. And they said, listen, you don't like us. I didn't know that they knew that. <laughs> I said, I love you. They said, no, you don't love us. I said, what, make you, what makes you say that? They said, every time we come out of the church sanctuary and you shake your hand, 
our hands. You never look at us. I said, I don't. I thought I did. I thought I looked at them too much. I didn't tell them that. I said, I don't. They said, you look at somebody else. And you know, my friends, of all things, everybody I was shaking hands with, I've always been in a hurry, I would shake hands with this person and look at the person next down the line. When I'd shake hands with him, I'd look at the next person. I said, Lord, forgive me. How, how, how human we are, aren't we, friends? Look at a person right in the face, smile, shake their hand, and don't wait for anybody to come and shake our hands. Let's be courteous. There's more soul winning in a courteous Christian than many people have any idea. The people equate God with God's professed children. And if we're kind and courteous, they assume that God loves them too. We love him because he first loved us. How courteous Jesus was to Judas. You ever stop to think how Jesus never exposed Judas? Up until that very last night, and even then the reason was so the disciples later would know that it hadn't taken him by surprise at all. So courteous. Whatever you're going to do now, you'll do quickly. Isn't that wonderful how kind and courteous Jesus is? True love is tender-hearted. Ephesians 4.32, it tells us to be kind and tender-hearted to one another. To be tender-hearted means that we won't be afraid to apologize. I've told many congregations what I'd like to share with you again at this hour. My father had eight boys, no girls. Can you imagine that, what that would do to any man? Eight boys? And I'm not going to tell you what his eight boys didn't do because there's very little that we didn't do. And there were times when we almost drove Dad up the wall. But Dad had a lot to do. He was a very poor man financially. He had uh, prepared for the ministry, so he had no occupation. Finally, they gave him a ministerial license, but he, he refused it. He said, I'm afraid if I travel too much, I will, I will neglect my own family, so I'm going to stay home. So he became a farmer. But not knowing too much about farming, not knowing much of anything about mechanics, and you have to be sort of a jack-of-all-trades on a farm, Dad was really upset. And he'd get upset at us boys, especially me. I never seemed to know just how to do what Dad told me to do. And, and Dad would really get irritated. He didn't know how little I knew. Sometimes I was glad he didn't. And he would get irritated. But every night when we had family worship, before we'd kneel in prayer, Dad would apologize. And then Mother would follow if she'd been irritated. And then it would go right down the line from the eldest son to the youngest. <laughs> and each time we'd say, will you forgive me? And all the rest of the chorus would say, yes. The older boys, yes. I, yes. And you can blend those voices together. It was quite a chorus. But one night, only one night of all the years I was at home, Father either forgot or, <laughs> or couldn't apologize. And he'd been rough on me that day. He knelt down and prayed. But Dad hadn't been tender-hearted. And I equated Dad's religion with Dad. I went upstairs to bed in that little old farmhouse turned toward the wall, and I just sobbed. 
I never once in my life ever talked back to Father. Never once. When he heard it. But now Dad couldn't hear it. And I didn't imagine I had such a vocabulary. Great big words like hypocrite. That old hypocrite, he professes to be a Christian. He preaches in his church. You wait till I grow up. I'll have nothing to do with his religion. And I'd sob my heart out. Then I heard the little old latch <clears throat> to the stairway door move. I said, I bet the old hypocrite's coming up now. <clears throat> sure enough, he was. <laughs> but he wasn't a hypocrite. I turned my face to the wall. I said, I'll never let him know how he's broken my heart. Never. And I just tried my best to play a possum. <laughs> That's a hard thing for a coon to do. <laughs> I'll tell you. Dad came up, put his arm around me. He saw the hot tears on my cheeks. Put his face up next to mine. He said, Glenn, will you forgive me? At that instant, friend, my father was the greatest man who ever lived. Love humbles itself. Love is kind. True love is courteous. True love is tender-hearted. And that told me what God's love is like. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. In Ephesians, the fourth chapter, the 32nd verse, it also tells us, be kind, be courteous, be pitiful, be pitiful. To be pitiful, my friends, means that we're to sympathize with men and women who are in trouble, with boys and girls who are in trouble. Was God pitiful toward us? 1 Peter 3, 8, be pitiful. I've been studying the pitiful love of Jesus, and it has astonished me. In the second chapter of Ephesians, it says that when we were dead in trespasses and sins, Jesus showed his love for us. I said, can you imagine? Imagine a person in a casket. They're conducting the funeral. Here is this man, dead. He's to be buried in a few minutes. Can you imagine somebody that he's hurt, he is wounded, he's been mean to, he's stolen from, he's been profaned to, he's cursed them out? Can you imagine that man comes up to the casket? He looks at that corpse. His enemy. He said, my, I love you. And then the Bible says that God's love was the kind that marries. That's found in Jeremiah 3. And he said, you know, my, I feel so close to this person. I would just like to wrap my life around this person. I can hardly think of losing him. Well, you'd say, that's ridiculous. The men were enemies. But remember, God is not our enemy. In Romans 5, 8, and 10, it says, While we were enemies to him, he died. While we were sinners, Jesus stooped and came all the way past stellar world and systems and planets down to the sin-cursed world and suffered and died on Calvary for us. Oh, thank the Lord, my friends, for such a pitiful Savior. What do you say? What a lover. What a Lord. When I was a little boy, and from then on through the years, 
my parents read a statement from my favorite author, and it went something like this. If professed Christians would humble themselves before the Lord and be kind and courteous and tender-hearted and pitiful, they would win a hundred people to the Lord Jesus, where now they win one. I said, Dear Lord, think of the tens of thousands of dollars that Christian churches in all faiths are spending in evangelism. Tens of thousands of dollars. We're not belittling the money that's spent, but wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if some of that money were spent in calling for church councils, conference committee meetings, and saying, look, shouldn't we study over these five great things, humbling ourselves before God, being kind, courteous, tender-hearted, and pitiful? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? And it costs nothing in money. It costs a lot in self. For me to be kind and courteous and humble myself before someone whom I think is so totally unworthy, someone who is mean, cursing, gossiping, oh, a hundred souls could be garnered to the cross of Calvary where now there's one. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to have that kind of a promotional program one year in every church? Wouldn't it be a glorious thing to have the various committees in the church, in the schools, in Christian schools, to meet? And they'd say, oh, now look, why don't we claim the promise of the Holy Spirit? Why don't we ask him to give us the wisdom and the Spirit of Jesus so that we'll humble ourselves. If somebody wants to argue, we don't argue back. We don't try to set anybody straight. We get on the same side of the fence. And we try to understand people who oppose themselves. And we are humble and we say, we think we understand. Maybe we don't fully understand, but we'd like to understand more of this as you are suggesting. So they see we're humbling ourselves. We're trying to understand their thinking. And then we'd say, well, I'm not sure I have a solution, but would this make any sense? Maybe what I have to suggest wouldn't be worth much, but how about this? Thus, we're showing a respect for men and women with whom we come in contact. And when we show men respect, they're assuming that the great God of the universe does as we do. And does God respect the sinner? He respected the sinner so much, all of us, that he let the, the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, flow from his head, his hands, and feet. Sorrow and love flowed, mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Did thorns compose so rich a crown? Then we say, if I, who am undone and lost, have pardoned through his name and word, forbid it, God, that I should boast. Save in the cross of Christ, my Lord. What do you say, friends? Back home in New York State, where I was born, the newspapers carried the story of a Chester A. Gillette. He lived up near Auburn, New York. He was engaged to a young woman, and finally he decided that he didn't want to marry her. So he conceived the idea that instead of uh, blatantly uh, turning her off since she had become pregnant, 
that he would take her out on the Auburn Lake on a lovely little cruise. And they would come back from this cruise and announce the terrible thing that had happened, that she had drowned. After all that he could do to rescue her, she had drowned. But the officials had the lake dragged. As they found her body, they found where the oars had hit her again and again. The telltale marks were there. Chester was hauled into court. As his father, his brother, and his mother sat there in court, though they had believed implicitly in his innocence, there was no question but what their Chester was a murderer. When the jury brought back the verdict, guilty of murder, the court recessed. Chester's father and Chester's brother walked over in a huff to where Chester was. They shook their fists in his, in his face and they disowned him. They wanted the whole court to know how angry they were. They were in no way a part of that nefarious crime. And as they shook their fists in his face and as they disowned him with oaths, they turned from him and left the courtroom. His mother, who was on the other side of the courtroom, by the help of some guards, made her way feebly over where Chester was. She placed her arm around Chester and put her face up next to his. And she said, Chester, I've always loved you. I always will love you. No matter what you've done or no matter what you ever will do, Chester, you are my son. And I love you with all my heart. As a very little boy, Chester, I loved you. As you grew and became a lad, I loved you. As you grew into adolescence, I loved you. As you grew into young adulthood and manhood, Chester, I loved you. And my love will never cease. Nineteen hundred years ago, the human race was doomed to death. We were a race of criminals. And God's beloved Son came down. And on Calvary, as it were, he placed an arm of love around our guilty frame. And his countenance marred by blood up close to our guilt-ridden countenance. And he said, I've loved you with an everlasting love. There's nothing that you can ever do that'll cause me to cease loving you. And then he turns and he said, look, now that you're forgiven and cleansed and have drunk in of my love, I want you to spread abroad everywhere you go the fabulous tender love, the everlasting kindness, the courteous love, the tender-hearted, the pitiful love of the one who loved you and gave himself for you. We love him because he first loved us. Dear Lord in heaven, I'm sorry for the many times I've gotten my eyes off of Calvary and the love of Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, 
a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.